Good evening, and welcome to the March 2019 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Tonight, we're talking about hate crimes and immigration, two important issues in today's political debate, and both with heavy impacts on the LGBT community. Our first guest tonight is Cynthia Deedle, a former FBI agent who led hate crimes investigations and who now works as the program's director for the Matthew Shepard Foundation. And then in the second half of our hour, we're talking with Okan Sagan. He's the co-founder and CEO of the LGBT Asylum Project, located right here in San Francisco. He'll give us a sense of how the Trump administration's immigration policy is hampering LGBT people who are seeking refuge here in the United States. He'll also talk about how his organization is helping people through the asylum process. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, March 24th, 2019. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of March 24th, 2019. When the Prime Minister of Ireland had breakfast with Vice President Mike Pence, he took the opportunity to make some pointed comments about accepting others. Prime Minister Leo Varadkar and his partner Matthew Bennett were in Washington on a diplomatic visit to the U.S. when they had a breakfast in honor of St. Patrick's Day at the Pence's residence at the Naval Observatory. Karen Pence, who works at a school that bans LGBTQ students and teachers, was not available for the meeting, so Mike Pence's sister Anne attended instead. Varadkar sent a polite tweet about Pence's warm reception, but he had some pointed comments for journalists who gathered at the Naval Observatory. He said, quote, I lived in a country where if I had tried to be myself at the time, it would have ended up breaking the law. I stand here as the leader of my country, flawed and human, but judged by my political actions, not by my sexual orientation, my skin tone, gender, or religious beliefs, end quote. And he added, quote, we are, after all, all God's children, end quote. And here in California, Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco announced legislation last week that requires incarcerated transgender individuals in the custody of the state's Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation to be classified and housed based on their gender identity, absent specific security concerns, as opposed to their sex assigned at birth. When transgender people are housed according to their birth assigned gender, which is currently the typical practice, they are placed at a heightened risk of violence, including sexual violence. This risk of violence often leads to transgender people being placed in isolation, quote, for their own protection, end quote, resulting in a loss of access to services. Senate Bill 132 would require that during the initial intake process, Department of Corrections record the individual's self-reported gender identity, preferred first name, preferred pronouns, and preferred gender identity of any officer who may conduct a lawful body search on the individual. It would also require department officials to house people according to their gender identity unless a specifically articulated security concern counsels otherwise, or the individual believes it would be safe to be housed according to their birth gender. It also requires that staff and contractors of the department to consistently use the gender pronoun and preferred name the individual has specified on all verbal and written communications with regard to that individual. And finally, here locally, Outbeat Radio, right here on Radio 91, is celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots with acclaimed author and LGBT historian Eric Marcus and Making Gay History. Our four-part series will feature interviews Eric conducted with icons of the LGBT civil rights movement and gay history. These are amazing conversations that reveal much of gay history that's been hidden until now. The first show features Magnus Hirschfeld and a local couple, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyons. 
Join us next Sunday, March 31st at 8 p.m. right here on Radio 91. For all the LGBT news headlines we're following, go to our website at OutBeatNews.com. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Since the 2016 election, reported hate crimes here in California and throughout the United States have risen sharply. Our first guest tonight is a former FBI agent who led hate crimes investigations at the federal level. Cynthia Deedle is now the program's director for the Matthew Shepard Foundation and now trains law enforcement on how to better detect, document, and prosecute hate crimes. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate your time. Well, it seems not a week goes by without some story about a hate crime. And of course, earlier this month, we heard about the terrible story in New Zealand involving the mass shooting in a mosque. But the fact is that here in the U.S., reported hate crimes, especially those targeting LGBT people, have gone way up since 2016. Yes, unfortunately. So before we get into talking about what's happening today, you've been involved in hate crimes investigations when you were working with the FBI. Uh, What drew you to that particular work? What I wanted to do when I was um, a child was uh, I wanted to be a police officer. And my father told me that he did not want me to be a police officer, that he wanted me to be an attorney like he was. I had no idea what that was. But he said that if I went to law school and if I became a lawyer, that I could actually be in the best law enforcement agency in the world. And I thought, oh, well, that has to be a good thing. So he told me if I uh, went to law school and became a lawyer, that I could join something called the FBI. And he showed me later on an old Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Today's FBI show in black and white. It was all very interesting. Um, and so that's kind of what I, the path I wanted to follow just to get into the FBI. And then as I got into junior high and high school, I became very interested in civil rights. And I wanted to do something in the FBI to protect the rights of citizens and to use the FBI as the vehicle to do that. So I just became very interested in equality and fairness and making sure that everybody had an equal shot in the world. Nice. I think we both dated each other because I recognized the name of that FBI show and used to watch that as a kid myself. <laughs> right? And it yeah. was, uh, yeah, I thought you could park your car in front of uh, Congress and park your car wherever you wanted to in Washington, D.C. Apparently that's not true. <laughs> well, at least not anymore. <laughs> not anymore, no. So give us a sense of sort of the big picture. What's the landscape look like for hate crimes around the U.S. today? I wish I knew. I wish I knew what the data looked like. I wish I knew what um, statistics and reports looked like. I think the biggest problem that we face is what we don't know. And we don't know a whole lot because a lot of victims of bias crime are afraid to report those instances to their local law enforcement officials because they are fearful Mm. of officers and departments, law enforcement departments oftentimes do not report their data to the FBI's uniform crime reports. So the FBI doesn't have good data on this. So it's, it's hard to really understand and know the scope of a problem when you don't know the data and the truth behind the extent of that problem. I think what we've seen, though, is just based on anecdotal data data and just stories and reports that have been 
published in a variety of media outlets, I think what we all would agree on is that there's a whole lot of very exposed hate in this world, especially in the last two years. And I think some folks, especially in the white supremacist movement, feel very emboldened and very proud and uh, very free to commit acts of violence based on their ideology. And that's going to take some time to turn around. But I, I think it's hard to know the scope of the problem when you don't know how big the problem is, really. Right. In 2009, the Shepherd Bird Act was signed into law, which expanded federal hate crime laws to include sexual orientation and gender identity, among other things. And that gave the federal government a little bit more involvement in looking at those hate crimes involving LGBT people. Talk about your involvement in that and what your experience was enforcing that act. The act I had followed in, in a variety of forms, uh, I believe it took about it took almost uh, over a decade to get the law passed, but I followed it for quite a number of years because I, I knew as an FBI agent working hate crime that I was severely hampered and pigeonholed into using really one federal hate crime law. And that law required me to prove a whole lot of things that were difficult to prove. And the biggest problem with that law was that not only did I have to prove bias motivation, and those biases were limited, but I also had to prove that the perpetrator committed a bias crime and that it was violent and that it was against a certain minority because the victim was engaging in a federally protected activity like voting or applying for a state job. We oftentimes didn't have that third prong in a particular case. So that law was very onerous. It was very difficult. It was very challenging to enforce. What Shepard Bird did in 2009 was it eliminated that third prong with this brand new law. So it didn't change existing law. It passed a whole nother statute that eliminated that third prong, that really onerous, difficult prong that I had to prove. So now under Shepard Bird, I just had to prove the bias motivation. I had to prove violence. And with an LGBTQ victim. I had, did have to prove a Commerce Clause aspect, which sometimes was slightly challenging, but it was pretty easy to overcome that. But it eliminated that third prong and also expanded the groups of minorities that we could now help. So gender, gender identity, the LGBT community, we could now investigate crimes committed against them, which we could not under the old statute. So it greatly expanded our jurisdiction. It got rid of some of the barriers in the old law, and it allowed us to even investigate crimes against individuals because they were disabled. So it just, it really increased and expanded our power in the federal government. Now, when you, um, when you say the Commerce Clause as being this new prong that you have to deal with, what exactly is that? And this is the point where everyone on your radio show turns off the radio show because we're talking about the Commerce Clause, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically what Congress wants to see in a federal criminal statute is that the crime, the facts surrounding that crime, instrumentalities used to commit that crime, something traveled across a state line. That's what we're looking at because Congress feels that if you're going to pass a criminal statute, it needs to impact more than just a small locality, more than just a city or a county, but it needs to have an interstate 
nexus really is what we're talking about. So for example, if there was a baseball bat used in commission of a violation of the Shepherd Bird Law and that baseball bat was made in Louisville, Kentucky, but it was used in Cleveland, Ohio, that baseball bat traveled in interstate commerce. We now have a violation of Shepherd Bird, assuming the other prongs are satisfied as well. Okay. And it, it could be the car that was used to commit the crime was manufactured in a different state, but that car traveled across state line, a crime was committed, we can establish a violation of Shepherd Bird. And it could also be used just with the economic impact. So if there is, for example, a gay couple that is attacked outside of a gay bar in a certain city, and that bar, because of the attack, is forced to shut down because that community no longer wants to patronize that bar, let's say because they're afraid of what could happen if they go into that bar, um, that economic impact could then have a uh, an effect on interstate commerce. If that bar is no longer in operation, it could definitely have an impact on the liquor that is sold over state lines to then uh, be consumed in that bar. There's going to be an impact. So the interstate commerce aspect is pretty easy to satisfy. It's just going through some hoops. Right. So it sounds like something even as simple as using an ATM card or accessing the internet could fall within that category, right? Of course. So yeah. if uh, the perpetrator needs to get some cash out to uh, buy a gasoline can and go to the, the gas station and use gasoline, he's, he's going to throw that over uh, a synagogue or a mosque or a gay bar to commit bias motivated violence, then of course that could be, that could be something that would be considered um, an interstate commerce aspect of the violation as well. Yes. Sounds pretty broad reaching. Now, one of the things that this act does is it also gives you the ability or the federal government, the ability to prosecute hate crimes in the five States who still don't have any hate crime laws at all. It, it seems kind of surprising to me in this day and age that there are five States and, and why do you think those States haven't passed any hate crime law of their own? I think there are many reasons. I think the biggest reason that I've seen is that the politicians who are charged with enacting legislation in a particular state oftentimes have run their campaigns on platforms that something to the effect that that candidate will not endorse special rights that candidate will not endorse rights for certain individuals, that every crime is a hate crime. We don't need additional legislation to address these uh, crimes that are just really for special people and that protect special people. I think that's one of the reasons. Another reason is they don't want to be seen as being uh, soft or catering to the LGBT community, that if they ran on a very Christian platform, they don't want to then be seen as enacting legislation to protect that community. It's very misguided, in my opinion. It's very short-sighted, in my opinion, as well. What these laws do is enforce crimes committed against people based on who they are. And it doesn't matter if it's an LGBT victim someone of the Muslim faith, of the Jewish faith, someone who's African-American. It's just trying to address the basis of hate where you find it. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not for special rights for special people. Right. 
Well, our listeners are probably trying to guess what those five states are. And when I ask my classes that question, Texas is always the first state that comes to their mind. And actually, that's not one of the states on that list. So we have Arkansas, we have Georgia, South Carolina, Wyoming, surprisingly, and then the great state of Indiana, which recently we reported uh, the legislature tried to vote on some hate crimes legislation, and they actually voted in reverse. Did you read that story? I did, and I it's very upsetting. And I know that Wyoming, there was some movement in the past couple of months to just have their hate crime bill get some traction, and that, that failed also. I, I think it's, again, it just goes back to the, the climate in our country now that um, politicians that were always opposed to passing hate crime laws in the five states that you mentioned are just not going to go back on these promises that they've held for so long. And for a lot of them, they've held for decades they're just not going to go back and and now reverse course and support this legislation. It is very upsetting. I think how these laws will eventually be passed is probably in the younger generations when they come up to fill these state legislative houses. I think they will be more accepting and more inclusive and more diverse and will have a much better chance of getting these types of statutes passed. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hope. And we're fortunate in California, we've got very inclusive hate crimes laws. We also have a mandate for law enforcement to be trained on how to detect, document, and investigate hate crimes. And we have mandated reporting where law enforcement must report hate crimes that they receive. But that's not the case in every state, as you mentioned earlier. Talk about the reporting process. What actually is required of law enforcement at a federal level? What's very interesting is that under federal law, the FBI um, is actually mandated to report their hate crime data to themselves. So every FBI agent that has a report of a hate crime is required to report that incident to another division, but to the Uniform Crime Report within the FBI. That is not done. I think a lot of people don't know that, but the FBI does not report their own hate crime data when they are required by law to do so. Individual local law enforcement agencies, as you well know, are not forced or mandated under law to report their data to the FBI. They're encouraged. They're supported to do so. They are... (laughs) um, The FBI tries to give them all the tools and training to do so. But they're not forced to, which then skews the data. So if California, which you are correct, is the pinnacle of investigating and reporting and prosecuting hate crimes, if they're reporting all the hate crimes, their numbers look staggering. They look like there's so much hate in California. But when you peel back the onion a bit, you realize that it's just because the state prioritizes this type of crime reporting data. So a state like Mississippi, um, Louisiana, Arkansas, Alabama, they look very accepting and tolerant because their hate crime stats are so low. But all that means is that they're just not reporting their data to the FBI. So what's very frightening is that those local and state and county law enforcement agencies 
in those states have no idea the extent of hate, of violent hate occurring or that may occur within those jurisdictions because they're not collecting the data. They don't have the data to analyze. They don't have the data to then review and surge resources towards a certain area or a certain community or a certain group because they don't know what's going on in their community. And that then transcends and expands to the FBI. The FBI in Birmingham or in Mobile or in Jackson, Mississippi, they can't rely on hate crime data too because it's non-existent. So it's, we certainly hope at the foundation that law enforcement agencies will recognize the importance of gathering and reporting and disseminating data and will do a much better job in that space, including the FBI. So what do you think the hesitancy is? I think one of the cities that didn't report any hate crime data, for example, huge city is Houston, Texas. They're huge. They're stable. Why wouldn't a city like that, that is progressive in a lot of ways, I suppose, why wouldn't they want to report that hate crime data? There is a... uh... I believe a DOJ funded study that is occurring as we speak. And it was a a study and a grant that was given to some academic and researchers at the university of New Hampshire to study this exact question. So you and I could hypothesize, we could try to figure out, we could use some news reports. We could read some other um, studies that have been conducted on, why doesn't Houston report their data? Why doesn't Honolulu? Why doesn't Corpus Christi? Why don't just a multitude of cities, why don't they report? And sometimes the reason is, oh, we do. We just don't report it to the FBI. We keep that data local. Or we report it to our state law enforcement agency, but the state doesn't give it to the FBI, and that's not our problem. Or it's simply... We don't have hate crimes that occur. There's no reason to collect that data because we don't have that type of crime here. Whatever the reason is, I think is pretty silly and baseless in whatever jurisdiction you could be looking at. Um, Even a city as, as giant as Houston or Honolulu, if you're not going to report the data because you want to be seen as being safe, that's that's fraudulent. I mean, you're, you're giving people a false sense of safety and when you shouldn't be doing that. Right. Law enforcement agency should be relying on true and accurate data that is then very transparent and is given to the public for their own use and review. Yeah. Yeah. So we really don't have a good idea of the scope of this problem. Um, but we do know that at least in California and with the data that the FBI has collected that violence towards LGBT people at least the violence that's being reported is on the rise. How have you seen hate crimes differ when they're targeted uh, towards LGBT people as opposed to some of the other groups? How are they different? They're very violent. They're very violent. That's been my experience. Um, we, I have not seen... Uh, perpetrators who and suspects that want to target the LGBT community, they may be cowardly and vandalize a car or a gay bar, but that's not so much what is reported, especially in the media. What's reported is very personal attacks on individual, very violent attacks on, on human beings as 
the form of carrying out this very expressive bias violence. So that's what I, again, using just anecdotal data, that's what I see. I think what also seems to be apparent is that you're right. These attacks on the LGBTQ community do seem to be on the rise. They seem to be increasing. And I'm wondering if it's because in under the Obama administration, the LGBT community felt very safe and felt very protected and they felt comfortable being who they were in public. They felt very comfortable holding hands, um, expressing affection to each other in public and not worrying about being attacked for just being who they were. And if you carry that forward then in the past two years, now these these individuals, this community is very out in the open and they're very easy targets. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if it's just the, the extent of that type of violence has increased because they're easier to identify. Hmm. So it, it's a theory. I don't know if it's true or not, but it seems, it seems to have some, some water, I suppose. Yeah. And I think probably in a similar way, um, that might account for some of the violence directed towards trans women of color. That group in particular has had just an astonishing high number of violent attacks. Um, I think I read a statistic that one in 10 trans women of color stand to be murdered in this country. What do you account? What's what's, where is all the animus towards trans women of color coming from? Do you think? God, that's a, if that statistic holds true, that is, that is a, that's atrocious. Um, you know, I think they're, they fall into so many different vulnerable categories that I think they're, again, they go back to that easy target group. So you see trans women of color and right away they fall into the LGBT community. They fall into the African-American or Latino community. They are probably, um, have suffered at some point in their lives from poverty, from homelessness, a lack of education and opportunity. They fall into those categories as well. So I, and and many of them um, then just to survive are doing whatever they can um, to to just simply be who they are and, and try to live in a safe environment. But they have all these challenges that they're trying to overcome and the other, I think the other part of this too is there are so many social service organizations that are not going to help them either for alleged religious reasons or alleged lack of federal funding issues, or you can't go into this particular shelter because it's only for men or only for women and you're trans and we can't house you. It's there they face all these challenges because of who they are, which is beautiful. But society that is trying to wrap around them is really putting up a stiff arm and saying, we're not going to help you. You're, you are, you are a group of people that we are just simply not going to assist. So it's really difficult for them to find help and find a community that is accepting and loving and willing to help them. So I think they're, again, they just fall into this really vulnerable situation where uh, I I wish more agencies and, and more um, 
social service organizations would step up to help them because that's exactly what they need. Mm. They need a community around them to help. It's a big problem, that's for sure. Where can our listeners go or where would you recommend that they go to learn more about the Shepherd Bird Act and to get more in touch with what's happening with hate crimes? There are so many good websites and organizations that work in this space. Uh, the Anti-Violence Project, as you know, is a wonderful resource for people. The Stop Hate Project with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, the Anti-Defamation League's Communities Overcoming Extremism, of course, the Matthew Shepard Foundation. We provide links to, to other organizations to try to help people. And if you want to get involved in trying to change laws or uh, get involved in some lobbying of your congressmen and senators, go to the Human Rights Campaign website, too. They can definitely give you some resources as to what to do. But there are um, there are a lot of organizations out there to help. And hopefully your listeners, if they feel passionate and moved to do something, it's pretty easy to find a way to help just in your own neighborhood. And I hope that people do that. Fantastic. Where can folks go to follow your work? <laughs> uh, the Matthew Shepard Foundation website, uh, matthewshepard.org, is um, a great resource to just see what we're doing. We're all over social media as well, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. We try to keep all of our events and our activities front and center so people can know how they can support our work as well. Great. And a big focus of the foundation these days is actually doing that training that we were talking about with law enforcement and encouraging agencies to report. So uh, if you missed any of those websites that Cynthia mentioned, we'll have links on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page and you'll find them all listed there for you. Well, Cynthia, uh, we could talk for hours about this. Uh, we will follow up with you again in the future to see, hopefully we'll see a turnaround of uh, this terrible trend with hate crimes. But we appreciate your time, and most of all, we appreciate your work. Well, thank you so much, Greg. I appreciate your time, too. We've been talking with Cynthia Deedle. She's the Programs Director for the Matthew Shepard Foundation. We'll be back with more right after this. Hi, this is Rick Dean, Executive Director of Face to Face. What if I told you that you could have peace of mind in just 20 minutes, and it's free? Face to Face offers free, anonymous HIV testing with results in just 20 minutes. Knowing your HIV status can be life-saving for you and those you love. Visit Face to Face in Santa Rosa. Call us at 544-1581 or visit us at f2f.org. Ending AIDS in Sonoma County, 20 minutes at a time. Oh, 
Public with I've Lived. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth here on KRCBFM Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. One of the most divisive political issues facing our country and our community is immigration. For LGBTQ people fleeing persecution, the road to seeking safety here in the United States through the asylum process has become more difficult and dangerous since the 2016 presidential election. But one of the local organizations helping LGBT people navigate this process is the LGBT Asylum Project of San Francisco. And with us tonight to share more about this issue is the executive director and co-founder of the LGBT Asylum Project, Okan Segan. Welcome to the show. Um, thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you on here, and this is a really serious issue to talk about. 
Uh, but before we get to it, tell us a little bit about the LGBT Asylum Project. Um, sure. We are a San Francisco-based nonprofit organization exclusively dedicated to providing pro bono legal representation for LGBT immigrants who are fleeing persecution and seeking asylum in the United States. Wow. And I, I'm sure you're probably pretty busy. How long has the organization been around? Um, so we were, um, we were founded in 2015. So this is our fourth year now. Excellent. And we were talking off air. You're currently in the financial district in the city, but you're getting ready to move right into the heart of the gay neighborhood in the Castro. Um, yes, we are very excited, um, actually, to be moving to the Castro. And that's through our partnership with the San Francisco Gay Man's Chorus. Um, so through them, uh, and we've been working on this really hard, so we're bringing immigration to the Castro. Um, we're moving our offices to 526 Castro Street. And um, yeah, we're super proud to be the first immigration group, actually, in history with offices in the Castro. Um, yeah, so um, there, you know, there are many visitors every day in the Castro, and now they will be able to see our sign up there um, which will obviously make asylum within reach and we'll be able to reach out to so many more people now uh, and let them know that, you know, they don't they don't have to return to countries where it's illegal to be gay, lesbian, transgender or bisexual. Wow. Excellent. Excellent. And, and tell me a little bit about your background and how you got involved in this work. Um, sure. Um, well, I'm originally from Turkey and an immigrant myself after graduating from UC Hastings. I worked for a nonprofit organization that served uh, mainly LGBT refugees in the Middle East. And that's where I was introduced to um, the intersection of immigration law and LGBT issues. And because I was gay, I was um, highly interested in um, this part of law. And, um, And at the same time, I've been through multiple immigration processes myself until I became an American citizen. So, um, and I can tell you this, it's a very stressful process to deal with. I can't Um, imagine. Yeah, so um, I can easily put myself in their shoes and um, understand them. And I think that's why um, I've been so passionate about about our work, about this work. Great. How old were you when you came to the U.S.? I would say 23. Okay. Yeah. And I imagine that growing up in Turkey as a gay man must have been really difficult. It was, certainly. Yeah, that was the reason why I wanted to um, move out of Turkey and live in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a whole other show and a whole other discussion. Right. Uh, I want to talk about this current immigration issue. I mean, it's, it's a huge political issue now, obviously. And we have been reporting really since the beginning of the year on several uh, related stories, one of which was this caravan that was moving up from South America. And there was a pretty large gay community in that. Um, and gay people really kind of find themselves in a difficult position, I think, with immigration. Can you tell us a little bit about what you know about this caravan and what some of the realities were with it? Um, yeah, well, there are currently thousands of Central American migrants um, reach Tijuana and and um, I would say most of them are still waiting to apply for asylum or their asylum applications be processed. Um, well, um, as we all know, the president has referred to caravans as, as like an invasion 
right. um, of the United States, and the government has been creating like dangerous policies against them. And you know, these policies mainly put LGBT asylum seekers in danger um, because I mean, one of them is keep keeping asylum seekers in Mexico while they wait for their cases to be educated, um, which is extremely dangerous. Um, and I mean, the U.S. government has not even disclosed any information about where or how these people will live in Mexico while waiting for, um, I mean, it could be months or years. Um, and for LGBT people, there are many reports uh, from human rights groups uh, that says Mexico is a dangerous country for members of the LGBT community. They face ongoing threats of murder and sexual assault and kidnapping and, uh, and other harm in Mexico. So, um, and there are some inc uh, incidences where the Mexican government also deports um, asylum, some asylum seekers back to their home countries where, I mean, it could mean death penalty for LGBT people because their families want to kill them or, uh, um, or there's like a, a huge stigma against them in their home countries. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there are other policies as well. It's, um, there's the zero tolerance policy that's been challenged actually in many courts right now, but um, it's basically treating all undocumented immigrants like criminals. Um, mm. So anyone who crosses the border illegally will be prosecuted, um, even if they are escaping from dangerous and life-threatening conditions in their home countries. Um, so um, um, yeah, these policies have been extremely dangerous and they create unnecessary chaos, I would say, among the immigration communities and also among immigration lawyers too. Every day we wake up to news and to new policies, changes to uh, to keep up with. So uh, it's been it's been it's been very challenging lately. I, I yeah, I bet it has. And what's right. your experience been in terms of the stories that you've heard about why people are seeking asylum? Is it LGBT people I'm talking about? Is it specifically because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, or are there other intersecting identities or life roles that are causing the danger for them? To apply for asylum, uh, there, are, uh, there are basically five grounds. It could be race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. In many cases, one applicant could have multiple grounds to apply for asylum. Um, if they come from a Muslim country, and if they abandoned Islam, for example, uh, they're gay, they abandon Islam, um, obviously that's based on their membership as a gay person um, um, in that particular social group. It's political opinion uh, because their government is extremely Islamic and it's, it's based on their religion. So it could be multiple grounds and we work on uh, just to cover all these grounds to make this case even stronger. Got it. So talk about the asylum process itself. What is its purpose and what does it take to gain asylum in the United States? Sure, yeah. Um, well, asylum is a form of protection um, available to people who are already physically in the United States and who have suffered persecution in the past or fear that they will suffer persecution due to their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or their membership in that particular social group. Um, so um, the process could be 
Um, it's a very detailed and it's, it's, it's very invasive, unfortunately, especially for LGBT people because it's, um, you know, they have to talk about their sexuality, their first experiences, how they realized that they were gay and also all the issues with their family members. Um, so a lot of times interviews go very emotional and a lot of our clients, they, um, they go in tears. So, um, that's, um, but what we do is. Um, the process right now takes about, um, the affirmative asylum process takes about two months um, at the asylum office. Um, once uh, an asylum application is filed, usually 45 days, days after the initial filing, we receive an interview date. So a U.S. asylum officer interviews the applicant. Um, the interviews can be anywhere from two hours up to four hours. Um, it's a very long interview. Um, that's where the asylum office wants to make sure that the person is actually LGBT, is not lying, is telling the truth, all these past incidences that happened to him or her actually, and that they actually have a, um, you know, what found the fear of future persecution, um, based on their, um, sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, so what we do is initially we, um, um, do the intake just to make sure that the individual is eligible to apply for asylum. Um, and, um, we, um, work on their declarations, their life stories, explaining how they realize that they're LGBT, um, how were they growing up, um, were people calling them names, any attacks during schools or all the bullyings, uh, and after school, how was it in college or in their, um, uh, work environment, um, all the attacks, issues with the police. Um, sometimes they are afraid of honor killings among their families. Um, and, um, so we work all of this, uh, in, in gather all the information in one declaration and we support it with other documents, um, such as support letters from friends or some photos. Obviously we need to show that the person is actually LGBT, um, some medical records, police records, if they have any, um, and we add the country conditions to show that um, what's happening to LGBT people in that specific country. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, we prep our clients for the interviews and, um, and then, yeah, um, usually 15 days after the interview, the applicant receives the decision. However, it depends on the background check or um, sometimes it, it could take longer. So what percentage of folks, just a guesstimate, go through this process and are granted asylum into the U.S.? So I can talk about our organization. Right, and right. Look, yeah. So luckily, we don't have any denials so far uh, within the past uh, three to four years. Um, however, so right now, after the Trump administration, the immigration court has been a little challenging. We do mainly affirmative asylum, which is at the asylum office. So that's why, I mean, we're also lucky to practice in San Francisco, um, this, where the asylum office is located, and um, they are very pro-immigrant and pro-LGBT. So... Okay, so that's that's got to help. Can you give us a yeah. sense of, of how many people we're talking about that come through your office a year? Um, right now, we receive, I would say, up to 10 emails a day from people. Oh, wow. Um, mm -hmm, yeah, um, from all over the world, though. Um, so we obviously, the first step to apply for asylum is to be in the United States physically. So um, unfortunately, we cannot assist people that are still in their home countries or that are not in the United States. Um, so we let them know about the asylum process here, uh, sent them the link to the USCIS website, 
And if they ever come to the United States, then obviously we are able to help them. Mm -hmm. And we also have a monthly um, asylum community clinic that is free for everyone. Um, we do walk-ins and we provide free legal consultations to people who ever walk in. It's every second Saturday of the month and that's in the Castro and um, that's where we get most of our clients from actually. Interesting. I would have to imagine that the immigration service and the asylum office would see your organization as really a help because, and here's my thinking around that, obviously if somebody comes to you and they present their case and you're going to go through and prepare them, you're going to be able to tell right away whether or not this is a fraud or a fake or that they're not telling the truth. And you're certainly not going to step forward and represent them when, if you don't believe them yourself. Is that fair? That's totally fair. That's totally correct. Um, that's why I think the asylum office likes it when the clients are represented um, because we would never represent someone who is not gay or who is not lesbian and try to deceive the process in us too. So um, that happened a few times. Um, even if sometimes the person is LGBT, they want to use um, fraudulent documents. They want to make sure that their cases are strong enough, which is not necessary, which is actually um, against the law. So uh, we definitely make sure that everything we present, everything the client represent, presents, um, is accurate, is uh, true, is the truth, and uh, is the correct information. Yeah, because that that just speaks to your credibility. Uh, and that's, exactly. That's, yeah, that's great. So we we talked a little bit about the movement from south of the border, but of course we're always hearing these horrible stories about people trying to escape Chechnya and you know Jamaica and and parts of Africa. Where are most of the folks that you're seeing coming from? Are you getting inquiries from these countries? from people trying to escape? Russia has always been in the list um, because especially since 2013 when they passed the anti-gay propaganda law, right. um, we've, uh, yeah, we've seen an increase since then in LGBT asylum claims. Um, recently, there is an increase in asylum applications, I would say, from Brazil, um, especially after the election of the current president. Um, I mean, he once said, I remember he would prefer a dead son to a gay son. Right. Um, yeah. So um, lately we've been working on um, asylum applications mainly from Brazil. Um, I mean, even last month, I believe, um, or within the past few months, Brazil's only openly gay congressman, I guess, fled Brazil um, because he's been receiving death uh, threats and hateful messages. So um, I would say Brazil is um, uh, among the top right now. Hmm. Boy, it's so sad. And how do most people then make their way to the country? They have to be here physically on U.S. soil to apply for asylum. How do That's they, correct. How do, they, how do they get here? I mean, if you're from, let's say, Brazil or you're from Africa, how does it happen? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure it's difficult. It's, it's definitely not easy, um, especially right now. Um, well, so they unfortunately need to be physically in the United States to apply for this process. Um, they can be here either as tourists or as students, or they don't even have to have any status to apply for asylum, um, which the government is trying to change right now. But um, so it's always, it's in the process of being changed. So, um, but yeah, as long as the person is in the United States, regardless of their status, they can apply for asylum. There's one condition, a major one, that they have to apply for asylum within the first year 
of their arrival. So um, for LGBT folks, obviously that's a little challenging because some of them, some most of the times, um, uh, when people, when someone comes from a country like Turkey, for example, they are not out. Uh, or they don't even know that they can apply for asylum just because of being gay or being lesbian. Um, and that they missed the one year deadline and that could potentially be a huge issue. Um, so that's one of the reasons actually I'm super excited to be in the Castro because now that we'll have our sign there so people can walk and see the sign and then walk in and ask questions so that they don't, they wouldn't miss the one year deadline. Right. And I have to imagine with just all the networking that goes on with, dating apps and other social apps and the other ways that our community is connected on the internet, that there is a lot more global communication going on with people. And so for folks locally to know about those resources, if they're talking to people outside of the U.S., that would be really valuable. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, we actually receive emails from um, American citizens who know people that are in Chechnya or in Brazil or in other countries and they ask us, hey, how can we help? And then we let them know about this process um, so they inform other people. Great. So how can people help with your work? You mentioned that you're a nonprofit organization. Correct, yes. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. So people can volunteer with us. Um, they can host house parties where we can come and give information about about our work, about the asylum process to their networks, um, or they can simply volunteer on our website, which is lgbtasylumproject.org. Fantastic. And tell us again when those special seminars are going to be, and, and where do you hold them? Of course. Um, those are monthly asylum drop-in community clinics. They are free. They are at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation's Strut Building in the Castro. Great space, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. We're on the third floor every second Saturday of the month. If they like our Facebook page, we always post it the week before so they can they know when the next one is. Um, it's um, Again, it's free. It's every second Saturday of the month, and our Facebook page is LGBT Asylum Project. So they can like us and they'll uh, be updated on our events and the community events as well. Perfect. And if you missed that website, we'll put it on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page and you can get connected with this amazing organization. Congratulations on your move, but most importantly, thank you for all the valuable work that you're doing. We've been talking with Okan Segan, who is the executive director and co-founder of the LGBT Asylum Project. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Well, thank you so much for having us. This was uh, our pleasure. And that wraps up our hour. My thanks to Cynthia Deedle and Okan Sagan for being with us tonight. Now, before we go, I want to remind you all that our shows are available for on-demand play on our website. You can also subscribe and get our shows as podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. A great way to stay connected with us about upcoming shows and special events is to join our email list. And you'll find links for all of this on our website at OutbeatNews.com. Now next week we start a four-part series celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. That's right, it happened a half century ago this June. And this year on all four Outbeat Extra shows, we're teaming up with acclaimed author and LGBT historian Eric Marcus. He's the creator of the Making Gay History podcast. During his research for his LGBT history books, Eric had the opportunity to record interviews with dozens of LGBT icons. 
Many of these amazing people have long since passed away, but their history and contributions to the LGBT civil rights movement have been preserved by Eric in his books and now on the Making Gay History podcast series. We're thrilled to be teaming up with Eric Marcus this year to share some of his amazing conversations on every Fifth Sunday Outbeat Extra show. The first one happens next Sunday, so mark your calendars and join us at 8 p.m. only here on Radio 91. In the meantime, do have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News In Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. So I give it up to you. Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out. Move mountains, we gon' walk it out and move mountains. And I'll rise up, I'll rise like the day, I'll rise up, I'll rise unafraid, I'll rise up, and I'll do it a thousand eight times again. And I'll rise up, I'll like the waves, I'll rise up, in spite of the ache, I'll rise up, and I'll Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCB-FM comes from listeners and from Sonoma West Publishers, bringing you the Sonoma West Times and News, the Healdsburg Tribune, Cloverdale Reveille, and the Windsor Times, providing independent journalism and local community conversations in print and online at sonomawest.com. We are Radio 91, KRCB-FM Windsor, and K215CQ Santa Rosa. It is 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next.